0: If the rest of you would open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, that's start at Matthew and go back two books. You'll end up in Zechariah um, and pull out the insert from the uh, bulletin. Zechariah, we're going to finish chapter one today. And while you're turning there, I want to relay a a theme that I think is common in many movies but stands out memorably in one that I've seen One of my favorite movies I've ever watched is a a movie called To End All Wars. And it's about the gospel arriving in a World War II POW camp in Taiwan. Um, And in the POW camp, there are two groups of soldiers um, that begin to emerge to camps. One camp is determined to enact vengeance upon their oppressors, to escape, to kill their captors. Uh, They begin more and more determined... And the other group, the group who gets gospelized, and this is based on a true story. Um, I, I've got the book. Begin to learn to love their enemies, serve well. But I, that isn't my point here as much as towards the end of the movie, as these people are being brutally treated in this prison camp, at one sequence, a, an allied plane flies overhead. And what immediately happens is even though these men are still prisoners, still under a foreign rule, that announcement that an Allied plane could get that far in, it's not Taiwan, I believe, it's, um, it's Cambodia, I believe. I could be wrong, but um, that an Allied plane could get that far in means that help is on the way, the, the war has turned, and from that moment on, the, the the soldiers in the camp, they're still in the camp, experience tremendous hope. Their spirits are lifted, and yes, it's days and weeks later that actually the the front line catches up and they're freed and released, but that plane going overhead gives a tremendous hope and announcement. And this passage is like that. You'll keep in mind that Israel is still under foreign rule. Despite the fact that they were sent back to the land under mm-hmm. Cyrus, they're still under foreign rule. The, the prophet Zechariah dates his prophecy not by the year of the reign of an Israeli king, but a Persian The book starts in chapter one, verse one, in the eighth month, the second year of Darius. And so, yes, they're back on the land, but they're a meager people. They're still oppressed. They're still under the control of a foreign power. And God raises up Zechariah, and we've seen his opening salvo, his opening message is a call to repentance. And, And God lets that hang in the air for a few months. But something amazing happens. The people repent. The people return to the Lord and what he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, return to me and I will return to you happens. And then as God looks upon a a faithful and repentant people, he begins to pour out blessings and comfort. And that really is the theme of this book. The name Zechariah means God remembers. You're not forgotten. And in What the book then moves into in our outline is from chapter 1 all the way through 6, Zechariah goes through eight night visions. I sort of suggested last week that Charles Dickens might have ripped off the idea of a Christmas carol where Ebenezer Scrooge gets three spirits, three visions in one night. Because in one night, Zechariah has eight visions that are comforting visions. These are words of comfort. Last week, we looked at the first of them, the vision of the, the horseman on the red horse and how God had announced both his anger at the nations who are at ease and his love and concern for Israel. Look in chapter 1, verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For I was angry but a little. They furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus, says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is a book of comfort. This is a book of encouragement. This is a book of God keeping his promises, God defending them. God disciplining their enemies. And in our next vision, just three verses, verses 18 to 21, what is hinted at in the first vision, God's anger at the nations is made explicit. Let's read the second night vision, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns, And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. That might seem a bit strange. And again, I remind you that in prophetic literature and visions, symbols are used. But again, thankfully, the, the interpretation is given. Zechariah, quite naturally, like you or I might, said, what's this? And what's this coming to do? And he gets an answer. So we're not left having to try to figure it all out ourselves. And in these three verses of the four horns and the craftsmen, God gives a news of encouragement to Israel, much like the announcement of that plane going over the prison camp. They're still under foreign rule. They're still suffering. They're still not fully restored. And yet, as God announces what is going to happen to their enemies and what the future holds, it gives them hope. So we're going to look at it that the text breaks down neatly in half. First, we're going to look at the four horns, then the four craftsmen, and then we're going to make some application. So the four horns. Well, the section starts with, I lifted up my eyes. This is a frequent occurrence. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, I lifted up my eyes. 5 verse 1. Again, I lifted up my eyes. 5 verse 9. I lifted up my eyes. What you get the impression is not that he's, he's falling asleep or that he's getting bored, but rather that he's overwhelmed by what he's seeing and he's meditating, he's contemplating on, on what he has seen. He's just seen a powerful vision. He's seen the angel of the Lord. And he heard an announcement that, that, a, that a military meeting was taking place as as reconnaissance reports are given back and the Lord speaks and he's, I think, just sort of overcome by this. His he heads down and he lifts up his eyes and behold, there's the next vision. And he sees something strange, four horns. Now, we, we think of that and what on earth is that? Well, the notion of a horn is a pretty common biblical image. Um, and Zechariah asks the question, what are these? And let's just read the answer given to him and then we'll try to fill in some of these blanks. So he says, "What are these?" He wants to know their identity. What, what do they represent? These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, horns biblically are a symbol, and here's your blanks of power and pride. Power and pride. Listen to Psalm seventy-five, ten: "All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up." And that makes sense. Horns are what animals use to attack. They're their strength. They're what they can wound other animals or people with. They're the symbol of their might and their strength. And hunters nowadays, get this. You talk about how, many, how big the, the antlers on the deer you shot were, and the bigger the better, right? i have been told. Right, John? Okay. John took me hunting last year. Help me get a deer. So, Yeah. So we get that. People put the antlers on the wall. The bigger the antlers, the the greater the conquest. Because by implication, the greater the power of the person. Or listen to Micah 4.13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord and the whole earth. I'm going to strengthen your horn and you're going to be unstoppable, is what God says to Israel in Micah 4.13. Horns are a sign of strength and they're a sign of pride, power and pride. Not necessarily pride in the, the sinful sense, but, you know, you're proud of your nation. You have victory. There's a pride that comes with it. And I want you to notice in this passage those words, pride. And shame factors hugely in this passage. First, there's the illusion of lifting up his eyes, which is just the first of something. There's things lifted up and there's things cast down. I lift up my eyes and behold, four horns. The angel that was talking to me, and I said to the angel that was talking to me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. These have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against Judah to scatter it. See, these people who, lifted, who dared to lift up their horns, who dared to lift up their strength to challenge Judah, they're to be cast down. The result of them lifting up their horns, their strength to Judah is that no man in Israel could lift his head. And God's going to come along and do a reversal. He's, he's going to knock them down. He's going to lift up. He's going to be the lifter of Israel's head. So horns are a symbol of power and pride. But specifically, we learned, they represent nations. Specifically, they represent nations. But the blank here, the horns represent four kings, specifically. Specifically. Kings and the power behind them. Now, commentators are divided over what to make of these four horns. It's possible that they represent enemies on all sides. Enemies from the four corners of the, of the uh, earth. It, this notion of four, if you look down in chapter 2, um, verse 6, is how it's used there. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of heaven. Now there, four means north, south, east, west. It's possible that that's what the four horns represent. But I want, I want you to think about some intertextuality. What I mean by that is this. Prophets have come before Zechariah. And we already saw that the angel of the Lord, back in chapter 1, verse um, 12, is familiar with the book of Jeremiah. He cries out, How long, O Lord, will you have no mercy on the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And we talked about how Jeremiah who really only came a generation before. Jeremiah is the prophet who announced, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Don't bother fighting him. God has given you into his hands. And his ministry ends shortly after Nebuchadnezzar gobbles up Israel. And 70 years later, they're back. Now, there must have been communication lines, trans lines to get these these written texts across because Daniel in Babylon is aware of Jeremiah. If you remember, if you've maybe sat through Pastor Gary's class on Daniel, Daniel, as the 70 years approach their end, begins to petition the Lord and it references that he's read this in the book of Jeremiah. So somehow, we don't know how, though these lines are, are, are there, communication lines, God's raised up a prophet. Well, what does he have to say? There's ways to get that so that Daniel has a copy of Jeremiah's writings in Babylon. The angel of the Lord here has a copy or is familiar with what Jeremiah wrote. Well, Jeremiah, and if you, not Jeremiah, Daniel, and please turn to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel gets given a revelation in two places in his book of Israel and the world's history and future. And and I think it's, it's fair to say that Zechariah and his contemporaries would be aware of this. And in fact, this message from Daniel would be the most recent, the most hot off the press scripture in their possession. Now, Haggai had begun his prophetic ministry, but he hadn't ended it. So his writings would not be complete. Daniel, on the other hand, had just finished his ministry. And with the concern that these people have for their future, I can't imagine that with a book that says so much about Israel's future and their present that the people would not be eager to disseminate it. And what happens is when you realize that that four horns represent four rulers or four nations, and you go to Daniel, you'll notice, huh, Daniel talks about four nations too. Let's, Let's take a look. Daniel chapter two, we're gonna pick it up in verse 31 to 45. You remember Nebuchadnezzar has a dream And he's so disturbed by it, but he can't remember what it is. You ever have that happen? You you have a dream and you go to sleep and you get up and you can just tell by the way you're feeling shaken up that something powerful happened, either a scary dream or whatever, but I don't even remember what it is. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls his wise men and he says, okay, I want you to tell me my dream and tell me what it means. And they just say, no one can do that. not very impressive and he's so upset he's going to put them all to death and Daniel comes forward and he says he, he can by the God's help he can do it and so in Daniel chapter 2 um, let's start in verse 31 you saw O king and behold a great image the image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening and the head of this image was of fine gold its chest and arms of silver, its middle thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. Now jump down, he gives the interpretation, verse 38. Um, it says, right at the end, you are the head of gold. So there's a statue four layers. And Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is the golden head. That another kingdom is bronze, and another kingdom is, um, no, sorry, another kingdom is silver, then bronze, then iron and clay. And what we learn from studying Daniel is that these four nations represent Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, and Rome. Jump, jump over to chapter 7, their identity becomes even more clear in, in Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. So, the short of, of, his, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is. Here are the major world empires that are coming. It starts with you, Nebuchadnezzar, and then the statue's got three more layers. Daniel chapter 7. Let's read the first eight verses. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold... <clears throat> The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and an eagle's wings. Then I looked, its wings were plucked off, it was lifted up off the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on its side, it had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and... Behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, It had great iron teeth it devoured and broken pieces, and it stamped and was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, if we were to study, and we don't have time right now to dive into this, it would, again, reaffirm that this is... Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Greece is the swift leopard, Alexander the Great, and it splits into four warring factions when he dies, and that's overtaken by Rome. But whereas it's possible these four horns represent the four corners of the globe, given how fresh off the press and how familiar they must be with Daniel's prophecy to, to have a vision of four horns to represent four rulers who will, who will oppress Israel, I, I can't help but think they'd make the connection. It, it, it lines up too well. But regardless, these horns represent four kings, and I think they represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, but what matters is what they're gonna do. You can go back to Zechariah now. What they're going to do is clear in the passage. They will scatter, shame, and terrify Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. Just just look at that. These are the horns, verse 19, that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And by listing Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem, I think he's just grabbing the whole thing. Um, Israel and Judah, the northern half, the southern half, Jerusalem, the capital. these, These are the horns that have scattered my people. And then if you look further, when he looks at the craftsmen, what do they come to do? These are the horns that scattered Judas so that no one raised his head, which is to say they made them ashamed. You can't lift your head. Your head's down. It's, it's, a, it's a common picture of, of shame. Israel was sh- ashamed. And they have come to terrify them and cast down the horns. So they will scatter shame and, and terrify Israel. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Second to Kings 24. And just briefly, I want to read to you the account of one of these horns, as I understand it, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Because we can read over the history of Israel and, and we can gloss over how brutal, how horrible was their treatment. We're just going to look at one of them. We're going to look at the, the conquest of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And you'll get the picture of how Israel is scattered, shamed, and terrified. What happens is Jehoiachin becomes king, and he's a bit of a punk. He has a three-month reign, and he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, has just basically made a sort of peace treaty. And in verse 10, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. And the king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all of Jerusalem and all the officials and all their mighty men in valor, 10,000 captives. This is where Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get taken. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. The king of Babylon brought captive Babylon, all the men of valor, and the craftsmen, and the metal workers, and all of them strong and fit for war, and the king of Babylon made Mattaniah Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah, and Zedekiah is a bit of a punk, and he's going to try to reach out and, and rebel, look at, look at uh, verse uh, 20, for because of the anger of the Lord, it came to a point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast him out of his presence, and Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, sorry rebelled against the king of Babylon. And that is something you don't want to do with Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't take that kindly. The ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of king Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people. Of the land, then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night in the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, through the, though the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, so the king abandoned ship, he sneaks out in the middle of the night like a rat, makes a break for it. And Nebuchadnezzar's men, the Chaldeans, are the Babylonians. They ca- they capture him. Listen what is done to him. The army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they passed sentence on him and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Now that is some severe punishment. The mentality is this. When you really want to teach someone a lesson if you're Nebuchadnezzar, We are going to have you watch the most traumatic and horrific thing you could see. We are going to murder your own sons in front of your eyes. We're not going to let you look away. And then we're going to gorge out your eyes so that that is the last thing you see, the last image on your mind that you've ever seen is your sons being slaughtered in front of you. And then we're going to put you in chains. We're going to take you to Babylon. Because that's what we do to people who rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. So... When Zechariah talks about these horns scattering, shaming, and terrifying Israel, that's is just one example of the brutality they'd suffered. We can gloss over this stuff. It was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. So, so then, what are these four craftsmen? Well, the word for craftsman means metal worker or smith. We'll start there. So he sees four horns, and then he sees four metal workers or smiths come. And this time his question's a little different. In the the first question, he asked the identity of the horns. Who are they? Here, I think he has some idea of how smiths might fit with horns. What are they coming to do? Well, let's look at the answer. Then he showed me four craftsmen. This is chapter 1, verse 20. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. These have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. They have come to cast down and terrify the four horns that would dare to challenge Judah. That's, that's the message. I mean, that's the entirety of, of the vision. The vision is here are four horns Powers, I've argued that they're the successive world powers under which Israel is under the thumb of. First Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then under the Roman thumb. But in each case, God promises, I, I'm aware of it, I'm seeing it, and I'm raising up somebody. There's already somebody in the works who's going to discipline them, who's going to take them down. That, that's the message. It's, it's four verses, and yet this is, as I suggested earlier, like that airplane going over the POW camp. Because they're still in it. And if I'm right, they're really only on to their second oppressor. They're under Medo-Persia. There's two more to go. And yet God has promised that he's got a plan through this. So, so how does this, let's move on to application because we have communion this, this morning. How, how is this encouraging? I mean, you can imagine, oh great, so we've got two more to go. How is is this encouraging? Well, commentator David Barron makes this answer to that question. The wonderful and consoling fact set forth in the vision remains that in spite of all the great Gentile powers who would each in turn take up the work of scattering and afflicting Israel, Israel would not be wholly swallowed up nor overwhelmed, but would remain. When all those powers should have disappeared um, and would remain when all those powers should have disappeared and would triumph in God's deliverance when the memory of their mighty enemies would be buried in shame and oblivion. They're gonna outlast the first horn. They're gonna outlast the second horn. They're gonna outlast the third horn. They're gonna outlast the fourth horn. Today, there are no Babylonians. Today, there are no Medo-Persians. Today, there are no Romans. Israel still exists. That, that's the encouragement that initially comes. And so for the application, what do we we get from this? What's Israel supposed to get from this and what are we supposed to get from this? First, be confident. Be confident. God is sovereign over human history. That's the first thing. What do you get from this? There's a plan. God's got a plan. There's, There's four horns. Not five, not three, not two, not six, four. Four. And corresponding to each one of the horns is somebody who's gonna take them down. This is a plan God's in control. This isn't chaos. This isn't meaningless. And you can be guaranteed that you're going to make it through each of those horns. If you wonder, will Darius change his mind? Will he finally turn and stamp us out? No, he won't. No, he won't. So there's an encouragement you're going to make it to the end. God's in control, he has a plan. He rules, that's important for us to remember, especially when we may not like the political climate we're living in, we may not uh, agree with our rulers, and yet we should know and rejoice in the fact that God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He taught this lesson to Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that in in Daniel chapter 4, after he makes Nebuchadnezzar eat grass, He humbles him, and that's power. Most powerful man on the earth. Why don't you go eat grass for a couple years? Then we'll talk. Nebuchadnezzar comes back, he learns his lesson, and this is what he writes in Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion, his everlasting dominion. And that's something coming from the most powerful man in the world at that time. It's one thing when the poor and oppressed say God's dominion is everlasting. It's another thing when Nebuchadnezzar publicly sends out a proclamation about his humiliation so that he can give praise and glory to God. His dominion, is everlasting dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will. According to the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors, my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me now. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways is just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, You can remember that. Here's an oppressed people under the thumb of Medo-Persia. They're going to be under the thumb of Greece. They're going to be under the thumb of the Romans until the time of the Gentiles is complete, which is the phrase our Lord used in Luke 21. Even now, they're in the land. They're oppressed. They're attacked. They're not dwelling in security. And yet, they will endure because God is sovereign over human history. There's a plan. There is a plan. Our suffering... Our trials that come into our lives, it it comes by design. It comes according to a plan. It's not haphazard. It's not meaningless. It's not chaotic. We saw this last week. God is sovereign. He's in control over human history. History, to make a cheap pun, is his story. Be confident. God is sovereign. Second, point B, endure. God's plan involves the suffering of his people. Endure. God's plan involves the suffering of his people. Now, this is the part that's harder to hear. But again, it's unmistakable. If God's got a plan and if he's in charge, what's unmistakable is God has ordained that four, not three and not five, but four horns oppress his people, scatter them and terrify them. That's the inescapable conclusion. That's what Nebuchadnezzar says. He does whatever he wants. No one gets to say to him, why have you done this and not that? Because he's God and you're not. And God has ordained, God's plan for human history involves the suffering of his people. Now you might say, why on earth would that be? Well, Let me read a few passages to you. There's a lot of reasons for that. The Apostle Paul wrestled with this type of theology. In 2 Corinthians 12:7. he writes this. I want you to listen to the reason. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that Paul had received... A thorn was given me in my flesh, which is a weak translation. It's a spear for his body. Same word could be translated spear or javelin. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So a thorn or a spear or something to pierce his side was given to Paul to stop him from becoming conceited. Now, is that the devil's motivation? Is the devil after trying to keep Christians humble not be conceited? So who is the architect behind this thorn? We don't know what Paul's thorn was. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now listen to the answer he gets. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You get that? God's power is perfected in weakness. Let me show you how that works. When big, strong, powerful people with big, mighty armies win battles, that doesn't surprise people, does it? But when weak little David in a slingshot takes down Goliath, and we still talk about that story. I mean, that's a story even unbelievers know. It's a, such a great underdog triumph. Little shepherd boy, giant, takes him down. God's power is perfected. It's seen more clearly in weakness rather than in strength. Right? Right? God's power is seen more clearly when we are weak and he sustains us than when we're strong and powerful. People aren't nearly as impressed when a guy driving a BMW, you know, saying, praise God. People are impressed when they see Christians suffer and give God glory. God wants to keep Paul humble and God wants to put his glory on display. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What's Paul's conclusion with that then? He says, I will therefore boast the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If you think through the history of the Bible, weak people backed into a corner against apparently helpless and hopeless odds is the place where God delights in shining. I mean, think about it. Israel and Egypt. Oppressed slaves. God makes such a show of it in delivering them and releasing them that that Rahab over in Canaan hears about it and converts. And the spies go to Jericho. She says, I heard about it. I heard about it. I'm on your side. I mean, understand she's committing treason against the people in her city of Jericho. But she heard of the report because God's glory was so perfected. His fame was so spread out. She caught word of it and she converted and we could go through story after story after story of, of God showing up to a weak people, God showing up to an enfeebled people, God showing up and delivering against hopeless odds. His, his power is perfected in weakness. That's one of the reasons God's plan involves suffering. And we learned this in in 2 Timothy, right? All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And James teaches us to count of all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance produces all manner of good fruit. So we know that God matures us and he grows us through suffering. His glory is put on display through suffering and trials. He, He causes us to rely on him through trials. There's so many reasons why God's plan involves trials, but understand, God's plan involves trials. And again, this goes against the prosperity gospel light that says if you're a good little Christian boy and girl, life will be smooth. And you won't be rich. You won't have unending health and prosperity. But, you know, God will spare you from, you know, the, the rough stuff. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs to dash that idea into pieces. Anyway, we need to move on. Time is short. Well, I'll say one more word on this. People, people have this idea that God wouldn't want them unhappy. And I'm going to paraphrase another preacher who made this point. Because people will say well, that just sort of it's hardwired. God wants us happy, right? God wouldn't want me unhappy. He wouldn't want me someplace where I was unhappy. And this preacher who I heard he said, Let me let me let me get this straight. It pleased the Father to crush and kill the Son for his glory, but you he wouldn't want unhappy. I'm just gonna get straight. It was the Father's pleasure the Son was willing to be crushed and bruised and crucified for the Father's glory, but, but He wouldn't want you unhappy. <laughs> it's just not the way the Bible um, lays it out. Um, it's not the way the Bible lays it out. Point C Take heart. God will deliver and vindicate His people in and from their affliction. God will deliver and vindicate His people in and from their affliction. Take heart. Even though there's an announcement of more suffering, there's an announcement of more oppression, there's also an announcement of deliverance. There's an announcement. It's, it's not going to be forever. There's an appointed craftsman who's going to cast down the oppressor in God's time. I think a New Testament corresponding truth, this would be 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man, and God is faithful he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will provide the way of escape so that you can bear up underneath it. It doesn't promise that there won't be trials. What it promises is that there will be sufficient grace and that the trials will not endure forever. It will move through seasons of blessing and peace and we will move through seasons of tribulation. Take heart. God will deliver you and vindicate his people in and through their affliction. Listen to, listen to 1 Peter 5. And, and turn to 1 Peter 2. We're, we're going to zip out here by looking at 1 Peter 2. But listen to 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you get that? After you've suffered a little while. It's not going to be forever. When you're in trials, it can feel like it's forever. He says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself, not somebody else, not going to send a third party, he himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Take heart. God will deliver and vindicate his people in and from their affliction. Finally, point D be patient. Vengeance is the Lord's and not ours. Be patient. Vengeance is the Lord, not ours. Notice God's plan does not involve Israel knocking down these horns. And it's rare that the Bible instructs Christians to, to fight back. Rather, the Lord encourages us more often not to turn the other cheek. But in 1 Peter 2, we get an even more glaring example of this principle. He doesn't be patient. Be patient. I've appointed the deliverer. I've appointed the one who will strike down your enemy. David wouldn't dare lift his hand against Saul. Michael, when he was wrestling with Satan, said, The Lord rebuke you. Now listen to, listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is hard stuff. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Why? Why should a servant submit with all respect to an unjust master? Verse 19. Now, because you might say, well, I'm not a servant. I don't say this applies to me. Because he backs up his instruction to servants in verse 18 with a universal principle in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one, anyone. This is true in all circumstances. Verse 19 is a universal principle. What is that principle? This is a gracious thing When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So so Peter's actually speaking to slaves who are serving their masters well, and they get beaten for no reason. Maybe their master's drinking too much. And they're saying, Peter, I'm, I'm working hard, and I'm doing my job, and he beats me. And the amazing, countercultural. cultural our, our response is, get out of there, fight back. It's a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows with suffering unjustly. Verse 21, and again, this is something you don't often hear in the gospel call. For to this you have been called. What, unjust suffering? Exactly. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was able to make it through all the mistreatment, all the suffering that he received, not because he thought he deserved it, not because he said it doesn't matter, but because he said, my father will vindicate me. My father will right the wrong. My father will deal with them. And so I'm willing and content to suffer. And Zechariah tells Israel, God has appointed nations to scatter and terrify you. And he has appointed deliverers will strike them down. You need to be patient, you need to endure, you need to wait on God's time. Be patient. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. Well, there's a lot more we could say about this passage, but this morning, as you see, we're, we're scheduled a time of communion, so we'll stop there. And I'd like to call uh, Pastor Daniel up. who will be doing communion, and the ushers for this morning's communion.